0: Recession is going to lead to um, uh, ever more declines in the in the labor, labor, high end labor sector. We've only begun to see the firings as far as I'm concerned. I mean, and, and everybody's still screaming about like, oh, my
1: God, I lost my job at Facebook.
0: Well, screw you. I don't care. But, you know, <laughs> uh, hopefully, hopefully this has just begun. You know, I mean, actually, you know, Elon Musk's. Um, little strategy at, at twitter was brilliant right because he he got out or got rid of fire of everybody i was and, hoping you'd bring and, that and up four out of five employees I'm like out. how's that even possible and then the platform works better than ever i mean this is like and there's not a single corporate leader of any big uh, company probably in the world who wasn't watching that and thinking i maybe should consider this too <laughs> you know let's see let's see how things go but you know not a not a bad move there elon
1: Welcome to the Futures Edge podcast. I'm Jim Muriel. as usual, brains behind the operation, and co-host Bob Iachino. Today we have a special guest, Jeffrey Tucker, who's the president of the Brownstone Institute, also a regular contributor to uh, Epic Times, author, speaker. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us, Jeff. We really appreciate it.
0: Oh, it's good to be here. Thank you.
1: So a couple quick questions. First of all, do you uh, exclusively go by Jeffrey? Do you go by Jeff? Do you go by big guy? Uh, Jeffrey go by?
0: is the usual. Jeffrey is the usual blather that people use. My mother calls me Jeff. My father called me Jefferson. So I just go by Jeffrey. Oh, um, I like Jefferson.
1: Jefferson is a cool name, right? but for whatever <laughs>
0: okay. reason we will not have it to work it, it, it didn't stick so you know so
1: where are you located where do you work out of
0: I'm talking to you from West Hartford Connecticut
1: Oh very cool I don't know if you've watched our podcast before we worked on the trading floors for 30 plus years our lack of formality might stem from that a little bit on the trading floor we're kind of abrupt and ask abrupt questions which we have plenty of which I think it's going to be a lot of fun because I just read your latest piece from the brownstone regarding corporatism, do you mind if we start there? Oh,
0: let's go. Yeah. Well, the th- the thesis of the article is that we're we're vexed by something we don't entirely understand, mainly because when we're when we're young, we're taught that the big debate is between capitalism and socialism, right? And We think of socialism as nationalized industries and redistribution of wealth, you know, that sort of thing. You know, something maybe like what Marx or the Fabian socialists in Britain taught us and capitalism is just free markets and minimal, minimal government. We're, we're dealing with something uh, completely different now, which is a merger of, of government uh, with business. And to the and it's, the merger has gotten so tight and extreme that it's hard to tell what's the hand and what's the glove anymore. Uh, so you've got private industry driving government and then you've got government, you know, cooperating with private industry. And of course, it's always the biggest players. Uh, in the industry that are the the the, the critical ones. I mean, the, uh, government, the federal government doesn't work with small business. Really, they're mostly interested in and in the large, lucrative companies who themselves are increasingly less uh, about serving uh, customers and stockholders. And more about about serving uh, a, a government and and large financial institutions like BlackRock and Fidelity and so on. So so we, the big challenge in, in my piece, I don't know if I went this far in my piece, but the big challenge for us right now is to regain stockholder and consumer control of these companies, which I think is possible. But that's, that's what capitalism means, right? It means control by the consumer. Yeah. That was the great revolution coming out of feudalism is that for the first time we didn't have producers dictating resource use and social priorities, we had uh, the consumers, the masses of people in control. So that's the control we've lost in this in this corporatist movement. Now, critically, the word corporatism was the original term for what later became fascism. But the problem with the word fascism is that after World War II, it just became, it came to mean just somebody you don't like. So it kind of lost its, its, its meaning. And one of the things I like about uh, RFK is he's now restoring this word corporatism. Which is, is a more accurate description actually.
1: So, so last week we talked a lot to our guest about the loan to Ford because I mean, it's easy to go to the pharmaceutical companies and I hope to cover that as well. But last week Ford gets a $9.2 billion loan from the government. And right. here's the part that irritates me and I want to know how we fight this. I talked about it on Twitter and I'm, you know, appalled by it. The rest of the people don't seem to be appalled at all. They were like, Oh, that's great. The government's a loan. It's not a grant. No, there's nothing comes from the government without strings attached. It seems to me to be a twofold problem. One it creates corruption within the space like why the hell does ford get it and not tesla and not gm two why, they right. could easily be betting on the wrong technology three right. now there's strings attached and for, and the government has the pull over ford how do we convince people of this
0: now as i understand from this loan it's it's all about uh, the ev market right the ev market has a major problem consumers don't want these things i mean it's the people who want them it became a sort of a status symbol in large urban centers where showing off you know your fancy cars you're showing off your uh, attentiveness to social justice or whatever it was was very fashionable but the, you know the problem is these cars have a lot a lot of problems associated with it. there's a, a use case for them that certainly doesn't pertain in places like texas or in the western states but i mean even in the northeast i mean this this past week i drove four hours to a, a remote campground in new hampshire from connecticut Well, maybe the EV can make it there, but then you'd have to charge up and charging is going to take, take a lot of time. It was just, you know, traveling is enough of a headache without having to do with that. The other problem is that they're very sensitive to the weather. So these things can be amazing during, you know, warm months, but then it gets cooler. I, mean, I was talking to a, a guy who picked me up one time for the airport in a, in a Tesla, and it's funny to be in the Tesla because you feel like you're, you know, riding an iPhone or something like that. But he told me, I said, do you like it?" He said, "I would never get it again because because his mileage drops by half during the winter months from what it is in the wow. summer months, and that's a serious that's a serious drop. And for him, time is money." Right. So he would he would much rather p- pull into a gas station, fill up over five or six minutes, than take off, you know, an hour, two or three or four charging his car because those huge monetary losses. So he says in general, he's losing more money by the time by the time he spends charging the car than he would be in paying for the gasoline. So, you know, that's just from a consumer point of view. So there's there's a very limited market for these things. I've always suspected, too, that the, the, the status element of driving the Tesla was um, a driving force to that company's success. Uh, Ford and these other companies you know, are not able to obtain this. They, don't, they just don't have the cachet of uh, Tesla for whatever reason. It's, you know, they're, they're more the raspberry to the iPhone, you know? And so they can't rely on that. Uh, so I, I guess what I'm saying is that it's a it's a serious problem for a, for a company to accept a loan like that, they might enjoy the the money, and especially Ford is losing money, you know, dramatically through mismanagement, and bureaucracy, and labor union control. They might enjoy the the, the 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 loan from government, but they still have to sell product. And if consumers aren't buying, corporatism doesn't really work. This is affecting Walgreens right now, which is you know just you saw what happened to their stock today. I mean, it was it's it's crashing because consumers don't want their vaccines anymore. Well, they were heavily invested in somebody. So in the end, so long as you have private property, you've got to have buyers of these products. The government just can't force things down people's throats so long as they they can exercise choice. I've actually tried to buy an electric
2: car. And the reason is, is I I grew up, basically with you know loving the the bandit trans am for lack of a better comparable car you know i like things that went in a straight line as fast as they possibly could and the speed of these electric cars from zero to sixty i'm like i want to get one of these things i want to get one i'll miss the sound but i just love that sort of slam back in your seat feeling and i still have not been able to find one that is also functional for the rest of my life. Like for example, yeah. driving back from Florida uh, where I now live to oh. Chicago, where my family still is, they're yeah. not even getting close. As no. we get new ones coming out, yeah. to your point, I want one and don't want one.
0: Yep, yeah. yeah, that's right. It's a serious tr- a problem for long, for long trips. And I tell you, somebody else is very interesting that people don't think about. I mean, I don't know why this is. Consumers are, this problem we could talk about. A major problem with, with these EVs is any repairs. Anything goes wrong, is going to be a very high dollar repair. I'm, I had a friend, I had a, one of them and the uh, air conditioner went out and it was past the warranty, went to go replace the air conditioner and it was, I don't know, $7,000. Who can, re- who can afford? And that's just one, that's just one piece, right? So. You know, you can't fix them yourself. You got to take them to specialists and the, the prices are astronomical. So I, I just don't see them long term. If you stopped history right now, I would predict electric vehicles will be pretty much what they are right now, which is useful in big urban centers as a second car, right? You can't, you can't even make it your only car, you know, because you still got the winter much. You've got snow. You've got long trips you have to take. So it's a second car. The other issue is is the strange about EVs is that it's hard to understand what the rationale is because from an environmental impact uh, point of view, uh, EVs are arguably, well, they're just as as bad and arguably worse, you know, with all the battery manufacturing and disposal and energy consumption, all of which requires, guess what, fossil fuels, namely coal, (laughs) not uh, not oil, right? So it's not sure. It's not clear what the gain is here. And um, my prediction on all this stuff is that once they get us all in these in these cars that don't work and are very expensive repair and and, uh, and don't go very far to encourage us to use 15-minute cities or whatever their wacko theory is, there's going to be a discovery. Oh, now we know that EVs are no better than gas-powered cars for the environment. So we're going to have to limit your driving and your usage. And Here's your new car. Wait, this looks very much like what I saw in the Flintstones. Uh, well, that's right. It's <laughs> <So good. laughs> brilliant. <laughs> it's interesting. To your point about Ford and GM and them
2: not being able to make a dent, I always thought that the point of the the sort of badge appeal of Tesla was they started with a hundred and twenty thousand dollar roadster that only yeah. the wealthy could afford and they yep. ticked down from there. As opposed to saying the honda motors model who started with am sure you guys remember that brown civic and that yellow yep. civic that they had back in the late 70s mm-hmm. early 80s they started with that they're like here we'll give you a car for three yeah. dollars and now they're still having a little bit of trouble especially on the coasts trying to convince people that acuras are a luxury yeah. car they still yeah. fall in below bmw below mercedes yet yeah. tesla does not
0: that's an interesting observation. It is It is. It is funny, the trajectory of the consumer marketing of these things. When you were talking about, about Tesla starting as a very high-end product, this is one of the reasons Facebook did so well in the early days because it was marketed to the Ivy Leagues first. And so that made everybody want an account so they could be like a Harvard student, you know, so versus MySpace, which was, you know, for everybody. So uh, marketing has a lot to do with uh, consumer psychology here.
1: When you said marketing. I was going to bring with the next question to talk about pharma. And back in you know the 90s, or you can correct me on the year, when we made it legal for pharma to directly market to consumer, I was all for it. I thought, of course, why, why should the government be getting in the way? Mm-hmm. Clearly, I was wrong because now we've morphed yeah. into pharma, Vanguard, BlackRock, the media, the government, essentially being one thing. Why was I so wrong? What happened?
0: Well, look, we were all wrong. All of us were wrong on this. And a lot of it has to do with uh, – uh, the FDA. So when the FDA comes along and says this is safe and effective, you just assume it's safe and effective. So anything that's approved is, I don't know, you just consume it. You got a problem in your foot. You take a foot thing. You got a problem in your chest. You take the chest thing. You have a problem with your skin. You rub the skin on, you know. So uh, the FDA disables that, that sense of uh, consumer beware. Right. We just, we just assumed that we would outsource our judgment to the FDA. And the FDA took advantage of that, developed a very tight relationship with the, with industry and started fobbing these products on us. And it wasn't really until the COVID vaccine that people got wise to, uh, the scheme. And, and now we realize that the FDA is, and, and by the way, I used to think the problem with the FDA is that they weren't giving enough approvals to enough good drugs. I thought there there was level a lot of us bureaucratic and. And they are risk averse. So that was a critique that was made in the 1980s, and I believed it just because I didn't have any experience in this industry. I thought that was true, but now we know it's, it's the opposite. I mean, maybe that was true then. I don't know what was true then, actually, but certainly right now, if you pay enough money, I mean, during this COVID vaccine thing, I ran across a receipt from from Pfizer, you know, with a personal note to the to the head of the FDA that said. Uh, you know, hope the wife and kids are doing well. Look forward to seeing it over over the holidays. And I've wired one point six million dollars to. And I, I read this and I thought this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. This this is a pure bribe. And uh, and I was about to post it and say this. Now we have the smoking gun. And I asked an actual expert on this kind of topic. You know, isn't this a scandal? And they said, no, it's not a scandal. It's called it's called uh, doing business. This is the fi- this is the filing fee for the vaccine. Really? I mean, uh, the, how, much, how, much of the, how much of the FDA's budget is provided by, by big pharma in the form of these filing fees and other, other fees of, directly from the industry? And the person says, well, it's half. I said, well, how do you know that? I want to see proof of that. Well, look at the website. Oh, it's posted on the website. Half our budget comes from pharmaceutical companies. So that's, that's it. If it's corruption, it's open corruption is part of the problem. So so I tore my Achilles tendon
2: a couple of weeks ago. So I've been going to a doctor, trying to figure out if I had surgery or not. And the entire time I'm like, it's gonna be surgery because that's what makes them mo- the most money. My wife actually said to me, she goes, you've gotten really cynical. And I said, yeah, I don't trust auto mechanics, veterinarians, roof tile guys, anything I can't do myself, I now don't trust, right? So now I'm like, yeah, they- by the way it's not surgery so now i love this doctor because he didn't try to make it the most money-making thing my question is do you think it's to focus on preventative in other words vaccines no. as opposed to treatment so we'll take COVID as an example although that's the right. obvious example instead of putting all the effort into treating the people that were sick all the effort went into preventing spread and preventing more people from being sick and the ones that were sick too sick to save the hell with them—they're going to die anyway. And I wonder if that's the issue, at least in a general sense. I don't seem doesn't seem to me like treatments are as good as they were because everything's about prevention. Is that
0: nuts? Uh, a big problem with the, with the COVID experience is that there was there was no emphasis either in research sense or 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 any other sense in uh, in on the on the treatment side of things. I mean, you'd think that the very first thing you would you would think about. If you had a virus, respiratory virus, is, well, what what do you do for a respiratory virus? They didn't care about that. It was even worse than that. There were huge efforts to take normal therapeutics off the market, at least in the United States. So hydroxychloroquine got demonized very early on, and so did ivermectin. And ha ha ha, here's an amazing aspect of this. Antibiotic use in, in the United States fell by a third. During the height of the pandemic period, and it turns out now we know that half the people that died from from COVID died from secondary bacterial infections, just like in 1918. So, so they, these lives could have been saved by just distribution of doxycycline or erythromycin or whatever, and and instead, and 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 of course, you know, the ventilation you know led to massive respiratory infections. So we had a period where there's a, a huge decline in the use of, of antibiotics at the time when half the people were dying of COVID, we're dying of secondary infections. So, I mean, the scandal is for the ages say nothing of the impossibility of getting a Nobel Prize winning drug like ivermectin, you know, in, in major parts of this country, not all, but certainly in Connecticut, there was zero chance of getting ivermectin. Uh, anybody who took ivermectin in, in, in Connecticut the last t- in the two years between beginning of lockdowns and two years later, uh, had to get it from New York, some other surrounding state in New Hampshire, you could get it. It's just a, it's just a scandal for the ages. So you might say, why? The answer is, is pretty simple. The, the point is that the vaccines were approved under emergency use authorization. The only way you can get the emergency use authorization is if there are no alternatives. So that emergency use authorization is only available in the case of a pandemic where there's no other uh, solutions. So in order to make that true, they had to take show a complete non-interest, describe ivermectin as horse paste. You know, say ivermectin uh, hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. Forget your antibiotics. Let's not study it. All the doctors who are it are quacks and so on. And then that's what enabled them to get the EUA for the, for the vaccines. Vaccines companies paid a lot of money to the FDA to make this happen. So, I mean, it's a scandal. And also taxpayers paid for the development of the vaccines. And then the companies got a patent for them. And well, That seems uh, insane. Yeah, it is. And so they're able to charge a gargantuan amount. And then government bought the vaccines. And when not enough people wanted them, then they were able to threaten your job and, and mandate, mandate that you get them. So it's like it was just the worst imaginable kind of combination of corruption and corporatism, I guess you would say.
1: As a side note, I took um, ivermectin immediately. I had, had doses of it from Mexico just based on the fact of the, the character of the people who were telling me not to take it. And uh, I was fine with that decision, and I'm not even—I'm not even joking. But you—you you several different times said scandal. It sounds to me, and I don't want to, to back into saying things that that you don't believe. But do you think mistakes were made, or are you saying when you talk about the antibiotics and putting people on ventilators, which we know for respiratory disease is silly, putting people on opioids, uh, despite the fact that that medicine had said people are if they have respiratory infections should not be able you know, they should be able to clear their lungs are you talking about like crimes against humanity type of shit or are you just talking about run of the mill scandal cuz we want to sell our vaccine
0: it's not a crime to want money it's a it's a crime to rob people on the street to get it right so <laughs> so i think <laughs> I, you know i don't know why we're so reluctant to describe what happened to the country under covid as criminal probably we should uh, use that use that term. I'm not reluctant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just because it was officially approved doesn't mean it's not criminal. I mean, it is criminal. If if anybody did this privately, it'd be considered a crime. So, um, and I'm so interesting to hear you talk about Mexico. Uh, Ivermectina, they call it, right? And it's available yeah. over the counter. You can get it anywhere. In large parts of the world, there's this really nice kit, you know, that was distributed, in in, in many states in India and in Mexico, all over Latin America and in Africa, that included uh, ivermectin, zinc, and vitamin D and doxycycline for secondary infections. Which is a COVID kit. All the people who distributed that, you know, had very minimal death per capita that all the most best performing states in the world are distributed these things. That includes all over Latin America. The U.S., all these kits were were effectively banned. I mean, some places you could get them, but they're pretty rare. It's really an astonishing thing. In the literature on epidemiology, there was a prediction early on, you know, I'm talking about in the, in the 1990s, that we would never again face a, a, a pandemic like 1918 because back then they didn't have antibiotics. They didn't have ivermectin. They didn't have hydroxychloroquine. They didn't have the knowledge of the role of vitamin D in uh, building up your immune system. So because of our medical knowledge, all the greatest epidemiological experts said, we will never have to worry about an infectious disease on this order ever again, because we now we have the knowledge. Yeah, we have the knowledge, but you have to use the knowledge. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so they actually created 1918, even though it was completely unnecessary. I mean, it, it, the whole thing is, you know, not to mention, you know, pretending as if um, natural immunity didn't work. I mean, there were countless times in 2020 and 21 where uh, people like Fauci and and Redfield and bolensky and for Jeremy Farrar and all these top players were asked about natural immunity, if getting COVID and recovering from it, you know, was, was good immunity. And they said, well, we're still studying that. I mean, what do you mean you're still studying that? We've known about natural immunity for thousands of years and and never more since the late 19th century when we discovered more and more about virology. So for them to get up there and just act like this is a speculative theory we just don't know is an appalling thing. I mean, we knew going into this pandemic, I knew because people were telling me, but also then I read about it. There's no question that, for this kind of infection exposure and recovery provides much longer lasting immunity but they would always set it up like well we don't know if that's can provide lifetime protection oh very interesting well that true you know as time went on we found out that the vaccine provided some very small modicum of protection for three or four months. And then you had to get another shot and then another booster and then another booster. I think by the end, they were recommending up, up to five and six shots. And now I think, you know, the typical thing is, is recommending shots, you know, like once a quarter or something. that's like, crazy, which leads to- My, my in-laws
1: that- just got like their seventh shot.
0: Crazy. oh gotcha. yeah it's and that leads to immune dependency syndrome or whatever it's called which so your immune system gets rewired to only think about this one pathogen and leaves you exposed to everything else and there's no cross typically not cross immunities with vaccines right so it's not a surprise we've seen these outbreaks of shingles and you know weird weird diseases that we never expected to happen because uh the human immune system has been rewired by its repeated exposure to a vaccine that was built for earlier uh, mutations. Which the other thing about 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 SARS-CoV-2 is, that we knew early on. Again, we knew this that it was one of these malleable vaccines that has a lot of changes of clothes. It's going to change with the season. It's going to always be mutating, and uh, you can't you can't vaccinate against virus like that. I mean, polio is very stable by comparison. Malaria is another one of these mutating things against which you can't vaccinate. vaccinate. So we know what you can vaccinate against and what what, what you can't vaccinate against, what typical uh, vaccine you can't, you can't, you can't develop a vaccine for a coronavirus. And they've been trying for decades unsuccessfully. But then they whipped out this new thing. No, now we have an mRNA platform technology, which allows us to adapt the vaccine for every new variant. Well, by the time the, 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 the new vaccine, the bivalent, for example, came out, that was a great experiment in uh, adapting the vaccine for the new variant. Well, that didn't work either. So you know, it's driving while uh, looking in the rearview mirror, you know, all the time. So it, the theory didn't work, which is okay, fine. You tried it; it didn't work. Admit it. That's that's what frustrates me. There's an article today by Rochelle Wolinsky in the New York Times. that gave her column inches uh, to babble on about what she thinks went right and wrong uh, with the CDC over the last few years. And she's you know, basically thinks that everything went, was perfect. You know, it, it, there's always room for improvement, but you know, by and large, we did the right thing.
2: I really think that's the, the main side effect of the vaccine. It's just to not notice that anything was even questionable. I mean, again, the whole idea that treatment, you know, we don't have vaccination vaccines for cars. Like, we don't inject cars with all kinds of things trying to prevent something that you don't know is going to happen to the car. Otherwise, we'd be putting shit in our car every day. If I could, I'm going to let you pick, Jeffrey, because I want to talk about climate and I want to talk about the Fed. Which one do you want to hit first?
0: Uh, Let's talk about the Fed because there's a lot of fascinating things going on right now. Uh, So famously, well, at least it's famous to me because it's where I really
2: got hooked on what you do is you compared in 2020, the Fed printing money, the money that George Floyd used that got him in the unfortunate situation that he ended up in and subsequently the unfortunate events that happened after that. So you had said that uh, the Fed printing money is almost the same as the currency that George Floyd was using in that convenience store. How far do you take printing money as a major culprit of all that is bad in the economic world right now?
0: Well, certainly the, uh, well, I would say it's mostly everything uh, because uh, most yeah. everything that's yeah. bad in the economic world today is is an outcome of, of lockdowns. The broken supply chains and the disruption of small business and the consolidation of industry, the learning losses, is the loss of the work ethic. You know, you, can't, you know, industries can't find decent workers anymore. When you can, it's going to be people like Alyssa Heinerscheid who, you know, one of these people, you know, comes out of Harvard and Wharton and gets a good internship, and then Bud Light uh, with her stupid theories. So um, I would say that you know lockdowns are the uh, the basis of everything, and also the gender dysphoria traces directly to do that. You can't isolate a whole generation of kids in their home, tell them to watch Netflix and enjoy them to play games and watch watch nurses dec- dancing on TikTok, and have them emerge with their brains intact. So suddenly it's you know a whole generation of Girls think they're boys and boys think they're girls. Everybody's insane. Now, none of this would have been possible unless the Fed had accommodated uh, congressional spending. It's fascinating to me because Powell came uh, into his chairmanship with every intention to dialing back the Bernanke zero interest rate policies. And he was working on that for a good part of 2019 and then had to put a break on that policy. Uh, they came to him in early March and said, you know, you've you've got to help us here. We've got a disaster brewing. And uh, like an idiot, well, a lot of people in that at that time, you know, went along with it. And so that's when he reserve- removed reserve requirements, slammed down rates back to zero, and uh, and then proceeded to buy all the bonds that um, Congress uh, enabled by their reckless spending policies. 1.5, 1. 1.5, 1. 1.5, 5, 1. 5. the Fed was there to eat them all up, all of which, you know, they just created uh, new uh, new dollar bills. So at the, at the height of the inflation in 2020, 20, late, 20, late 2020, they were, uh, increasing the M2 by 26% per annum. So a gigantic increase in the numbers I'm just gonna estimate um, around the $6, $7, $8 uh, trillion total. Now we've seen a fall in money supply for specific reasons, but it was an unprecedented inflation. it was inevitable that this would produce price inflation. And this is because unlike in 2008, where Bernanke uh, actually paid the banks to keep their deposits at the Fed, to keep the hot money off the streets. So that's why we didn't see inflation after 2008. Uh, This time they're dropping it like from helicopters into everybody's bank accounts. So the stimulus money that people were getting during that period, you know, was quickly wiped out by inflation over the course of uh, 2021. It was the greatest head fake in the history of uh, modern economics, actually. And all of it was enabled by the, by the Federal Reserve. So then they so had to turn around and, and give us the largest, fastest rate increases in history just to clamp down on the inflation.
1: I saw you write something about M2 um, contraction. And you know M2 contraction was contracted four times, prior to this time, four times in history that it's ever contracted more than 2%. Three of those times were associated with depressions. The other was a huge uh, banking panic in 1893. This time it's contracted 4.6%. I've yeah. argued that 4.6% doesn't mean we're going into depression when you juxtapose that against the 7 mm-hmm. to $8 trillion that was mm-hmm. shot into the system. Mm-hmm. Is my point valid? Uh,
0: it could be. Um, I, I think the answer to that is we, we don't really know. I mean, it all depends if that 7 or $8 trillion that was shot into the monetary system is now endemic uh, into the macroeconomic environment, in other words, absorbed into our daily lives, sufficient. Uh, in which case, a sudden drop of, of four or five percent could be actually uh, devastating, or whether we're still waiting to see the full effects of that inflation. A lot of this is de- is going to be is determined by the velocity of money, which is still not recovered to what it was in two thousand nineteen. So I I think the answer is that we're we're going to wait and see now. Based on you know, econ- economists use this term chitterous. T- 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 boost which means you know look everything else equal, if you take the macroeconomic environment thats, that's an, in equilibrium with the existing money stock you know in, endemic into the structures of production and everything and slam down money by by five percent you're going to drive a recession in the real world, not everything's equal, so you might be you might be right however uh, we have seen two successive quarters of decline in what's called the GDI, which is the uh, the obverse of the GDP, right so That's the gross domestic income. We are technically in a recession now by that measure. GDP is very much influenced by government spending and that's still going up. We're gonna find out more, I think, in two days from now when the new GDP figures come out. So we'll know. Um, And by the way, the relationship if that holds up, historically between the GDI and GDP, has been, they've tracked each other very carefully with a lag of, you know, two or three months. So here's,
2: and this is an ongoing sort of back and forth with Jimmy and I, I hate to call it an argument because I I don't want anyone to think we don't like each other, we truly don't. I don't want them to just think that. (laughs) But from the perspective of Jimmy, here's where I see the contradiction and you don't know the whole backstory, but the contradiction to me is, Jimmy thinks the Fed is as stupid as I think the Fed is. He might think they're dumber, But he also thinks they're going to engineer the only soft landing in history, except for maybe 1994. Mm -hmm. So I I don't believe that's a thing. And I liken it to, and this is a great exaggeration because I I am nowhere near invested at this level. But you guys remember Michael Burry in the Big big Short? He kept being down 70%, down 80%, down 90%. He was right. He was just wrong about his timing because everything was pointing in that direction. And that's how I feel about a recession. Is that you know, when you have this kind of an injection, when you have this kind of helicopter money, and you had savings rates go to levels that we haven't seen That's since true. it was actually good to be an American manufacturer. Yeah. And now it takes longer time than someone as dumb as me could calculate to bring it back down. So yeah. I almost feel like There's no way out of a recession unless the Fed adjusted their inflation target to like three and a half, four percent.
0: You know, I'm always intrigued by this metaphor, uh, soft landing, because, you know, the the presumption of the term soft landing is that something's in flight. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So you already have to be flying or have a soft landing. I mean, nobody would argue that the economy has been flying. You know, we've we've seen very low growth. Uh, since since lockdown times and and I was actually thinking and I've I've hinted this in my writings but I've not fleshed it out it's possible that we're going to look back in five or ten years and say oh there were ne- there was never a recovery after lockdowns there was statistical recovery mainly driven by, by government spending but in terms of private production and, and genuine genuine private sector you know productivity we may never we have yet to emerge. which case, you know, we may just see 1%, 1%, 0.5%, 0.5% decline, 0.5% increase, and this could go on for years. But we could look back in 10 years and go, oh, that was a Great Depression. And it began in March of 2020. I mean that's possible. I'm just saying. I mean, we, it's, sometimes I wonder if we're we're too. And I am guilty of this too. And I, I think it's sometimes we get trolled by these by these data releases. You know, I it's true. I wake up early. You know, for the GDP and the CPI and the PPI. It's like you know, five thirty, the alarm goes off, and like ah, just wait. You know, and that's and refreshing all the us, right. yeah re- refreshing habit. the browser at eight thirty. I mean, it's all a little bit ridiculous. <laughs> and then and then we tear through the numbers you know to see what happened you know maybe we're falling for delusion too because if you look back at what happened over uh, 2022 and uh and most of this year it's not impressive like at all you know it's it's actually i mean and what for the average person is the difference between a 1% rate of growth that's mostly attributable to uh, government spending and a, and, a, and a negative one percent, you know, I mean, it doesn't actually mean anything. It's just because we can say, oh, we're in recession versus we're in recovery. I mean, we're we're calling these shots and, the, you know, the, it may just be mostly yeah, an illusion, you know. And for the
2: record, Jimmy and I have both said this. We're both like we really don't care if we go into a recession. We're just trying to be right. <laughs> it's
1: true. Well, we can't we control need- it. Yeah.
0: We desperately need a recession. I would say even further, we need we need a, a serious depression because the alternative is worse. Um, and the okay. alternative is pushing is it continuing. pushing
1: it off is
0: worse. Yeah, yeah. And uh, pushing it <clears throat> off is worse. Constant inflation. I mean, we've seen the dollar lose. 16 cents of its value over the last three years that's not 1977 to 1982 levels but it's still really devastating yeah and don't forget we're still just recovering from the great inflation of the late 70s we're still dealing with that and which had catastrophic effects on american family life and household income and every every other aspect of lives and we're still dealing with this and then now we get this recession Okay, it's not as oh, this inflation is not as bad, but it's also a little disturbing to me that we've not seen as much a decline in the rate of inflation as as I would have expected. You know, I mean, you look at that core rate, and it's still it's still quite intense. Once you take out food and energy, we're still at, at very very high levels, right. even by you know historic measures.
1: A quick question, just today, you mentioned the dollar losing sixteen percent of its value. Today, I heard of the um interview with Seth Klarman. And I I didn't think he ever gave interviews. I had never heard of interview with him before too. And he started, and I believe me, it's not a comfortable position for me to be disagreeing with Seth Klarman. I think from what I know, he's brilliant. But he started talking about the everything bubble, like the everything bubble, like Mm -hmm. everything's in a bubble. That's Mm -hmm. bullshit to me because the bubbles we've seen in our lifetime necessarily mean leveraged up hands down to weak hands, down to ridiculous leverage.
0: Mm -hmm now yeah, everything right.
1: can't everything can't be in that position so why i that's mean right. is that is he is he a knucklehead or what
0: yeah well it just means he doesn't understand how the yield curve works that's all hmm. yeah like every every uh, business cycle like this in in history every every ex- credit expansion even when it doesn't affect prices mainly operates as a subsidy to the right side of the yield curve. That's 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 yeah. why housing in 2008, and that's why media and technology over the, over the last 15 years, right? So if, if you're going to unravel that situation, it's going to uh, disproportionately affect capital-intensive I- industries. When I say capital-intensive, we used to talk that way in the 20th century, but, but these days, where, where technology has so dramatically changed, reduced the cost of capital, what, what, you're, you, what you're mainly seeing is a high cost of labor. The difference between what you get as the marketing director of Bud Light, who doesn't do anything except destroy a company, she gets half a million dollars a year. Whereas, you know, the guy across the street, who's like the most expert uh, butcher I've ever known, uh, probably gets, you know, $12 an hour. Okay, so, so why is that? Um, and it's, it's because what we used to call, you know, capital from the high end, high end industries, you know, gone into very high wages for bureaucrats, you know, and the reason that they've been able to throw labor at all these problems over the last 15 years is because they were able to rely on a, a great deal of leverage. Uh, based on their high valuations in the, in the stock market, which makes them dependent on th- their, their lenders. But the recession is going to lead to uh, uh, ever more declines in the, in the labor, labor, high-end labor sector. We've only begun to see the firings, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, and, and everybody's still screaming about the like, oh, my
1: God, I lost my job at
0: Facebook. Well, screw you. I don't care. But, you know, <laughs> uh, hopefully, hopefully this has just begun. You know, I mean, actually, you know, Elon Musk's, um, Little strategy at uh, Twitter was brilliant, right? Because he he got out, uh, got rid of four fire out everybody. Of five <laughs> I was hoping and, you bring and, uh, that uh, up. Four out of five employees. I'm like, out. how's that even possible? And then the platform works better than ever. I mean, this is like, and there's not a single corporate leader of any big uh, company, probably in the world, who wasn't watching that and thinking, I maybe should consider this too. <laughs> you know, let's see, let's see how things go. But you know, not a not a bad move there, Elon. So you twice have mentioned
1: Bud Bud Light, which this is one of my favorite favorite stories, because um, I just think it was so absurd and it was so fun to challenge the lefties. When I stopped drinking Bud Light, I'm like, no, it's bullshit. He's making fun of women. He's making fun of the characteristics that women have been trying to shed an association with for 50 goddamn years. And this clown is going to be part of it. But now here's a question that I think is very, very serious. I don't think Bud Light or Target was trying to curry favor with their customers. I think they were trying to curry favor with the government, with some social credit score, Whatever it is, and that terrifies no. me. Could I be right?
0: Uh, you could be right. Uh, there's also don't forget uh, just sh- sh- sheer incompetence here. You know, I mean, uh, the, the usual marketing gimmick in the past is to take your existing cover customer base for granted, and to always seek out new, new, uh, new segments. You know, and and this crazy person Heinerscheid, at Bud Light thought, well, here's here's somebody with a big TikTok account. Let's market. Some beers to uh, to to his her followers, uh, without realizing that in the world of social media, this stuff leaks out. But the other thing she didn't really understand, as an old woman that she is, that the reason people followed Dylan Mulvaney was not because they were in great admiration of her uh, pantomime, you know, tricks. They followed her for the same reason that you slow down the highway when there's a car crash. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The whole thing is absurd. I mean, you want to see what the hell's going on? You know, I mean, that's that's, that's, that's <laughs> you don't want to try to be her. If, if you guys ever
2: want to see something that'll remind you of Dylan Mulvaney, maybe you've seen it already. Google prancer size, and it is this uh, geriatric woman who weighs about four and a half pounds, dancing around with ankle weights, saying she's imitating prancing horses for exercise. Uh. Physically resembles the the girlhood Dylan Mulvaney. It's. It's yeah, well, let's,
0: let's uh, get Michelob to, uh, to send her a, a beer with, I thing <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: uh, But I've, no, I've, I've,
2: I've,
0: I'm so grateful that. I used to drink Bud Light so that I could stop drinking it. I really feel bad for the people who come up to me, well, I never drank Bud Light. How come I, I can't participate in this boycott? They were feeling left out, you know? <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's hysterical. You know, what's funny to me, too, is that the left was like this this bo- this uh, organized boycott. Now, none of us called each other and said, hey, are we boycotting Bud Light? We're all just like... Now we've had enough of this bullshit at my bar. You know, I own a bar in Palatine, France, France, Palatine in the Northwest suburbs. The next two days after the whole bullshit broke, we sold no Bud Light, zero Bud Light. Since then we've sold a little bit more, but people like, just nobody said a word about it. Nobody's like, Hey, we're not drinking Bud Light anymore. It was just like, no, I'm just tired of the bullshit.
0: Well, this is the thing. The New York times, the most insufferable paper, they, they've attributed this to conservative influencers. You didn't need conservative influencers nope. manipulating their conservative <laughs> followers. you know. No, I mean, that's not it. These are like normal people going, this is not my thing. And that's the key. So I'm in
2: Southwest Florida. I went to my Target. There were no tuckable bathing suits at the front. There were no displays. So I went to my Target. Was, to me, it was no big deal. And the minute that I started hearing, we should all boycott Target, I'm like, look, the core conservative value to me is do what you want. Don't bother anybody else. Right. You know, as long as you're not hurting anybody else, don't do it. My target did none of the sort in very red Southwest Florida where I live. It seemed like the store decorators, manager, whoever does that job, knew they shouldn't or knew it might be a problem, and they just didn't do it. The issue I've always had is when did our closest friends down here, a gay couple, they're two wonderful guys, they've been together 12 years. It's the people we hang around with the most down here. And they've yeah. actually expressed to me, "This is not what we ever wanted. Oh, of course. We just oh. wanted to be left alone." Oh, of course. That's it. Yeah.
0: yeah, and and not only that, but L G and B don't like T because T re- <laughs> reverses their whole identity. So it doesn't. Yeah. So that's why they string all doesn't these letters. exist. Yeah, they string all these letters together <laughs> as an attack on the first three. I mean, it, so but so it's a great the exclusion of women. women. Interestingly yeah. enough, yeah. to the
2: exclusion oh, of yeah. women, but the inclusion sure. of so-called people of color,
0: oh yeah, no, right yeah. it's 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 vicious uh, to try to you know take the old civil rights movements and 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 these pride displays are just are just just unbearable, you know with the endless rainbows and everything and, and anyway, it's upsetting a lot of people. All of this gets us back to the initial question about corporatism. Is my main point is what, what whether you like Bud light or not. Consumers need to be put back in charge of production decisions. That's the way capitalism is supposed to work. But it's not going to happen unless consumers get wise. And what I'm seeing is the birth, and it's very exciting, of a new consumer movement, which is all about uh, not trusting the, the, you know, the meds just because you know, they're, they're on sale at CVS, uh, not blindly just going through life and grabbing you know, whatever kind of thing has been advertised to you, but to thinking about what you're doing. You know, thinking about your groceries your medications you know where you're living the things you're consuming what you're putting in your body and taking charge uh not only of your you know your eating and your vaccines but, but even things like your nutrition that's the way to keep the doctor away uh, is nutrition uh, doctors sure. don't study nutrition and in medical school I mean, it's very interesting so we're starting to see these big changes. So uh, the collapse in Walgreens stocks today is has got a very similar root as the the uh, the boycott of, of Bud Light. They both represent consumers getting smart, all of which traces to the loss of of trust in institutions, uh, public health, government, media, technology company, everything we've got, uh, polit- you know, politicians, huge loss of trust, well, you can't trust them. Who can you trust? we got to learn to trust yourself, which means you have to educate yourself. You have to act on that. So that's, I think that's a dramatic cultural change. And I think it's going to have huge economic impact in the, in the coming years. Hey, Jimmy, real so quick. This is a, call
2: people. We're, we're yeah, recording on Tuesday, the 27th. The Walgreens is uh, currently down a lot. So I just want to have a reference point for people who are looking at yep. Walgreens. It's down somewhere in the range of nine and a half percent. Yep. Yep.
1: So you it sounded to me like you're positive about this movement now, which I which I want that to be, because you're preaching to the choir here about personal responsibility, like even at the beginning of COVID, you know, guys like Bobby and I, we work out obsessively. I remember thinking we're not all in this together. I've been building my house of bricks for the last goddamn 10 years. We're not all in this together. But anyway, the point the the question I was going to ask is that social media seems to play a large part in this because now there's mistrust in the media. Uh, and that's really the only way we can communicate. Do you see it as being the the big linchpin in the whole way that we communicate and the way that this movement is going to gather steam?
0: Yeah, I I think sometimes people can exaggerate the extent of the decentralization of media. On the other hand, it's wrong to ignore it. Uh, uh, The major networks still have a great deal of power. Uh, There's a whole generation that still, you know, hangs on to the... uh, the nightly lineup of the big networks and that sort of thing. On the other hand, I've noticed this myself. I was on a show a couple of days ago by a guy I never heard of. And they contacted me like it was, you know, uh, the Royal, the royalty has arrived to bless me with their awesomeness. I never heard of the guy. Well, I went on the show, it, you know, it turns out that the guy's got tens of millions of followers everywhere and viewers everywhere. And it is a very influential show. I'd never even heard of it. So I think this is the way things are going. And I think about when I was growing up, I mean, it's actually bizarre when I think about it. News was lasted 30 minutes, and it was distributed by three networks, and 10 minutes was international, 10 minutes was domestic, and then you got the sports and the weather, and that you were done, and then you move on to watch a Love Boat and the *Sunny and Cher show. So that doesn't mean that nothing was going on, it's just that we weren't being told about it, you know? Yeah. Um, now we've got all these alternatives out there. And, and the the implications of that, I think, are incredible. Also, let's just assume that we're just at the beginning of this, you know? And and actually I used a test for this with my mother who's you know my sort of always my test case and everything. And um I asked her about RFK's uh video where he was doing push ups and he stood up to a seventy year old man that looked like Aquaman, you know, which yeah. I have to say inspired me. But I asked my mother if she knew about it and she said, Oh sure, everybody knows about that. Well, as far as I know, that was never reported on any of the major networks. So I don't I don't think she saw that on TV. So how did she get that information?
2: Gotcha. I mean, I didn't
0: ask her. All he did was post that on Twitter and it's probably most everybody in this country knows about it. So that's, that's kind of a lot of power, if you think about it. That's that's very encouraging.
1: Bobby, you and I spend a lot of time in the weight room. Roids yeah. or no roids? Roids, me? right? Me? No, for RFK.
2: <laughs> oh, you saw his body. Uh, no, I don't think. Well, if you're asking me, none right now. But um, yeah, no. See, RFK, but I'm just saying,
1: can a 60? Yeah, RFK. Can a 69 year old build no. that type of muscle without?
2: He wouldn't. He would that level drugs. of muscle without uh, TRT, testosterone replacement. He's definitely on testosterone replacement. Yeah. He might be on low he levels of be. growth hormone, but steroids to me is different, even though they're chemical compounds. And basically, and this is the the sort of I, I did steroids 20 years ago. And the difference is people, there's a lot of confusion. People think you inject steroids and I don't know if I should have said that. Anyway, you inject steroids and you sit down and the next day you are like giant. It's and tough to work. It actually, it's not how it works. It's recovery, right? You actually, it allows your body to recover. So if you're on steroids, you can, for example, train chest four times a week and the muscles repair and you can train again so it ends up that you're able to triple and quadruple the output testosterone replacement all it does it doesn't necessarily help your tendons or ligaments to my understanding but it does help in a similar fashion where you are able to recover like somebody 10 15 20 years younger jeffrey do you disagree with any of that
0: I, I, I just don't know I wouldn't I, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not I'm not aware of that but the uh, guy with the
2: ponytail <laughs> and the tattoos in the gym told me all this so I know <laughs> and, and
0: Jeffrey on
1: our show just because you don't know about something doesn't mean you can speak like not speak like it. an expert on it we do it all the time <laughs> I try not
0: to talk about that no anymore. but honestly all,
2: all kidding aside the reason the reason I know about this I wear this all the time and it's a medical tag. I had a brain tumor in 1997 that damaged my pituitary function. So I've had some level of hormone replacement since I was in my late 20s mm-hmm. because my pituitary was messed up. Mm-hmm. So I was part—I was one of the subjects of a study on human growth hormone um, when I lived in Los Angeles at UCLA. When I moved back to Chicago, they took me out of the study. And I, I'll tell you what, in one week with human growth hormone, I went from doing uh, four pull-ups to 14, That's it was nice. one week. Well, so there, is, there are effects. Right. And there certainly are effects, but I've been someone who's had some level of medically uh, prescribed hormone replacement Mm -hmm. for almost 30 years. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if I've had an effect. I'm going to be 57 in September. Maybe I die next year and I'll let you know. But to this point. You know there it's definitely aided yes you can't be 70 and look like that unaided in my opinion
0: i'm very optimistic about his campaign in general though i think he's making a lot of very good points and having it and so we don't know we don't know it's going to be okay very interesting i have final
1: two questions and then i got a restaurant that i got to go and run um first of all how long does it take a bow tie Two. any time in the la- to tie a bow tie and any time in the last 10 years have you grabbed a clip-on bow tie and tried to pass it off as a real one because you were short on oh, time? Oh, I've, ne-
0: I've never, I've never done, I've never done that. Uh, the the hard part of, <laughs> of this of this machinery is is not the uh, it's not the tie; it's the the collar. That's that's that's, ah, that's okay. Yeah. Now this was kind of broken. In. you should go on Scott Shelly's show, Jeff. Uh, I'll send send
2: your information as producer, and you guys should side by side tie those things and see who But does you it know, it's,
0: so it's you can right do it. Yeah, it's it's more difficult. Is it just as time.
1: easy as a double Windsor that I tie? I mean, when no, you get used to it? It's
0: it's much easier. It's the same as tying a shoe. It's in fact in fact really? it's exactly, exactly the same knot I've Fantastic. never seen that done before. This is grown. Me neither.
1: Thank you for that. See, this is <laughs> this is the takeaway from this show, how to tie a goddamn bow tie. But the second question is more serious. Bob and I and Cameron Dawson have high stakes wager of one crisp American dollar that's losing its value per second. So by the time payment comes up, it might be worth about 50 cents. I say the Fed is not going to tighten anymore within the next five years. Bob says I'm crazy. Cameron says I'm crazy. Where are you? And are you willing to wager um, a dollars?
0: this depends on, on uh, uh, politics. I, I do think we're going to see uh, higher and higher rates until you reach that terminal rate. And I, I, I assume the terminal rate is 6 or 7% or even 8%. You've got to get ahead of the existing inflation rate. My concern is that um, this will provide the Fed some liberality for further loosening down the line. One of the reasons- Well,
1: that's what the yield curve says. Negative yeah, 100 yeah. base points, two 10s yeah. right now. So
0: yeah. this is, this is the problem because they're trying to, the worst possible scenario is that the Fed is, what the Fed's actually doing right now is, is preparing the way for a, a future, uh, repeat of, of 2008. And if we get, if the banking crisis gets worse, if we face a real financial crisis, the Fed will definitely act. So there, it's Break we're crack. never we're never going back to 1982 where the Fed says, oh whatever, recession, let's just live with it and get through it. That'll no. probably never never happen again. So eventually, we may have in, end up using these things. this a it's a gold note that I got over the weekend when I was in New Hampshire. It's made of genuine gold. It's one one thousand a troy ounce, and uh, fantastic. Know, Can you tie that into
1: a bow tie?
0: Because
1: <laughs> <is my> <laughs> that would be pretty kick ass.
0: <laughs> I, I just I just took it over to the bank and said, what do you think about it? And they were, basically our attitude was, "That's get that out of here. That's not money. So we'll see. <laughs> I don't
1: even know what it is. All right. All right I'm going to so see if
0: my account at Old Glory
2: Bank will take that. I'm going to call it probably.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's been a ton of fun. Uh, we dispelled any of the notions that people who wear bow ties are stuffy. They are fun and can knock around just as well as we can. Thank you very much for coming, Jeffrey.
0: Such a pleasure to see you both. Take care. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you, Bobby.